Hello, this is Steve, and we're with Weidler Brothers of Compass in the D.C. metro area, and you're listening to the Real Talk podcast. This is Naomi Klein representing the Compass office in Beverly Hills, and you're listening to the Real Talk podcast. What up, everybody? This is Chef Jack Harris at the uh, Talk Team podcast. This is Jade with the Jessica Northrup team from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to the Real Talk podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Real Talk. If you're first time joining in, thank you very much for listening. If you're a repeat customer, I always appreciate you as well. Thank you for being a loyal listener. Some of you guys since day one. Wanted to talk today about a couple things. First, what's going on this summer in my life. Second, what's going on with the presidential election. And third, maybe we'll touch a little bit, a little bit about the housing market that's going on these days. Today, I'm solo dolo with episode number 36. I'm doing it alone. Have a lot on my mind. Have some exciting guests that are also coming on next week. I have an economist from StreetEasy slash Zillow. Many of us brokers have a thing against them, but they do have a lot of data. And I have an opportunity to bring on one of their economists to talk about the Manhattan market and what they've seen during COVID and what kind of changes they've seen across the board in New York City. So this will be a great opportunity to get in their heads on what they're seeing. And hopefully we can have a great conversation about the differences of what we'll see in the market moving into the future. First off, let's talk about New York City this summer. Obviously, it's a different market right now. Different in terms of neighborhood feel, different in terms of the population of people in New York City, different in terms of the restaurants and the retail landscape and how people commute and all of that. I get it. But what I don't want people to, to for those that don't live in Manhattan, to conceive our city as is a ghost town or a town that's dying with no residents or the town that has no life. If you walk down any of the streets of West 4th Street, 7th Avenue, 6th Avenue in the West Village, go down to Soho in the evenings or Tribeca, walk around Tribeca on, on the week on the weekends, go down to Battery Park City, uh, go check out Domino Park on the waterfront. Uh, even during the day, I mean, the city is busy. We, there is a lot of people out here. I don't agree with some of the news outlets that has recently published. There was a guy, he was a hedge fund manager that wrote a long post on LinkedIn about how New York City is dead and telecommuting is the future and office spaces are no longer going to be used. I get where the sentiment comes from, but at the end of the day, there is something about New York City where the energy is infectious and people live here because they always want to gravitate towards that energy. And I, for certain, am very confident or am more than confident in the return of Manhattan. It's just a matter of, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And uh, a great article that was written by Jerry Seinfeld earlier this week was an op-ed published by the New York Times. And he, you know, he had some great quotes in there. He said, I think I believe the title was "So You Think New York Is Dead." It was uh, you can Google it. It's on New York Times. But he said, you know, there there's some other stupid thing in the article that about the bandwidth and how New York is over because everybody will remote everything, quote unquote, remote everything. Well, you know, guess what? Everyone hates 
to do this. I personally hate working from home. Plenty of my colleagues hate working from home. And it's just a matter of we have to do it. We were getting used to it. And some of our colleagues with family and their kids and they're working from home. And it, it can be quite stressful. I mean, are you more productive in an office environment where you're collaborating with your team? Or are you more productive at home with your kids or your wife or your family? Or maybe your desk is right in front of your bed and just, Maybe not the most professional background that you want to strive for, for you to maximize your day professionally. So, I don't agree with the remote everything concept. There is definitely no energy when it comes to the work from home environment, especially in the long run. Energy, attitude, and personality, I believe, cannot be remoted. Even through the best fiber optic lines or the best internet lines. That's the whole reason many of us moved to New York in the first place. That's the whole reason many of us moved to a city in the first, first place. I'm a firm believer that the energy in the bullpen with your teammates cannot be replicated at home or through the internet or through Zoom or Skype or FaceTime. It just cannot. So New York won't come back. It's just a matter of, not, again, it's not, not a matter of if, rather a matter of when. If you listen to some of my previous episodes, you may have heard the episode where I had Gabe Strollman, who is the founder and CEO of Happy Cooking NYC. They manage and operate and own about nine restaurants. So they did own about nine restaurants before the pandemic hit. Just to follow up to that episode, yesterday, Bar Sardine, located on West 4th and West 10th Street in the West Village, closed for good. Their landlord was probably not the most realistic in terms of negotiating the rents and they could not come to a mutual agreement and they closed sad they've been there for many many years and this is the end unfortunate but that's how the real estate business is sometimes with restaurants uh, it is a fabric of new york city that was torn that will never return again but knowing gabe and knowing his positivity towards growing his business i have no doubt in my mind that they'll come out stronger as they say, one door closes, another one opens. And then before we get to today's topic, I want to quickly touch base on the market. Historical. Unbelievable. I mean, the rental market, we'll talk about the rental market first. The rental market has never seen numbers like this as long as I've been in my business for almost 13 years. But also, Gordon, one of our managers, he's founded City Habitats. He grew it. He sold it to NRT when it went public. He, they were the forefront in uniting the rental market in Manhattan. Even Gordon himself said, well, talk, if we hit 20,000 vacancies in Manhattan, that's going to be historical and we're going to see a lot of uh, free rents offered and concessions offered and lower rents and landlords are just going to have to face the reality that we're in. And fast forward to today, I'm recording this on August 28th and I'm just going to just go up right here. Excuse me here. I'm going to pull up these numbers. Today, we're at 23,522 vacancies. Friday, August 28th, 23,522. I mean, this is far from where we started off when we opened up from quarantine. These are just mass droves of renters deciding, okay, I've had enough of New York City. I need to temporarily move out because the offices don't want me back for 
uh, the rest of the year or the rest of next year or the next 10 months, whatever it may be. If you uh, just listen real closely at these figures, just, just so that I could rattle these numbers out. When I started officially recording our daily Manhattan vacancy rates, this is just Manhattan, we're not counting Brooklyn. When I first started recording uh, these numbers, that was it was on July 22nd. So exactly one month after phase two opened up, on July 22nd, Manhattan had 20,594 vacancies. So just a little, little under 21,000 vacancies. That figure already at that point on July 22nd, we were already above historical figures. And then fast forward to today, one month and six days later, we have shot, blown that record out of the water, shot up to 23,522 vacancies. I, I don't know what to tell our landlords and investors at this point. All I have to say is you are... If you are experiencing vacancy this year, or if you have pending vacancy this year, not to sound like Dr. Doom, but you are going to lose money, guaranteed, 100%, in a way of concessions, aka three months rent, or lowered rent. There's just no ifs or doubts about it. The only one bedroom, or the only deal that I've done this year, since we call this, uh, post-corona, right? PC, uh, 2020 PC. In New York City, I would say PC will be June 20, uh, May, June 21st or June 22nd. That's when phase two opened up and real estate activities could begin. So since June PC, 2020, June 2020 PC, post-corona, we have done probably 60 or 70 rental transactions on the landlord side. It's a lot. We did a lot of vacancy. It's probably a record number of deals that we've done in the summer. Only one deal stands out to me. It was at 92 Perry, apartment 14. It's a one gorgeous one bedroom in the West Village. Asking price was $5,200 a month. And that's how much the tenant was paying last year. The only major difference was this year, the owner had to give up a concession of one month. And we got it rented. It was a prime block on West Village. West Village, that's on Perry and Bleecker. Gorgeous block. Really nice apartment. It's a walk-up. Fifth floor, too, by the way. $5,200 a month. I mean, that's the only apartment that kind of got away unscathed. But the rest of these apartments, the rents are down probably 15 to 30%, depending on the apartment size and the location. So, uh, as they say, you know, time to pay the piper. This is not a good year to be a landlord. This is a year to plug the hole and try not to let the water drain your boat because this is the year you've got to ride it out. You cannot make money. Don't think, don't get greedy. Like my friend Chris Okada said on one of my previous episodes, vacancy is your enemy. Low rent is not. And that's the reality we're in in 2020. That is the theme of 2020. It's been an unbelievable market as far as the rentals are concerned. If you're a renter, if you're a tenant, great. Come on in. You're going to find yourself some pretty good deals in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Brooklyn, obviously lower as well, but the figures aren't as explosive. I mean, today it's 10,045 vacancies. If you think about it, uh, when I started recording on July 22nd, we're only up 1,000 1, units. And, you know, in July 22nd, there was only 9,076 vacancies. Again, today... 
10,045 vacancies. It's just a, a little under 1,000 units difference over the course of one month and six days. So if you're looking for deals in Brooklyn, I wouldn't say Brooklyn is not the time to be looking for huge discounts and huge concessions. I think Brooklyn came out relatively unscathed. Still down year over year, but relatively unscathed. And then the sales market, Manhattan is so big and so broad. I can't get, you got condos, co-ops, lofts, you got pre-war, new development, you got post-war buildings, you have conversions, you have different, a billion different types of, of styles. So I'm not going to go into the sales market as much. But if you're in the market for sales in Manhattan, you're probably going to find deals as well. Inventory is up 30% year over year. So there's about 8,500 units on the market for sale. Uh, and then that's about 8.2% up from last month. So that, that's a pretty good figure as if you're a buyer. It just depends on the market. Everything is segmented. I did say on one of my most recent top TV episodes uh, that between the – we call this the Midtown South Market. But the Midtown South Market, which is basically south of 59th Street and north of 47th, 44th Street or 45th Street. It's called Midtown. Not specifically Midtown East, but Midtown South. One new development was that was signed in the month of July, and the average sales price went down to 3.02 million. Where last year the average sales price in these hot shot Midtown East 57th Street corridor apartments was like eight million dollars. So a lot of the expensive apartments pretty much came off the market that were publicly listed came off the market. So that's where the deals are at. If you're if you have the budget of three to five million and you you don't mind buying in Midtown. We could probably get you discounts of up to 20 to 25% off right now, maybe even more just depending on the building. And then uh, as far as the median sales price in New York City, it's down as well. It's about 20% down all across the board. Right now, the median sales price, including co-op and condos, is about a million forty-seven point five. Days on market is up about 2.4% year over year. And price per square foot asking, this is just condos and new development, is down 10% year over year. The biggest indicator of the current health of today's market in Manhattan is how many contracts get signed in Manhattan or Brooklyn, wherever we're talking about, how many contracts actually get signed every month. That's the most, that's the closest indicator to trying to find the pulse of Manhattan's market. How many buyers are going in, making an offer, signing a contract that month. And I'll tell you right now, based on um, last month's activities in, in, we're wrapping up August. So between July and August, Contract signings were down 38.7% year over year. That's 498 contracts that were signed last month. Compared to last year, it was a little under 1,000. So that's the major difference between this year's health of the real estate market versus last year. Buyers have pulled back. This is no longer a seller's market. Buyers have caution. They're in the driver's seat. They're controlling the tempo of the market because they're trying to find out Hey, quote unquote, right? I don't want to be the first one in the forest finding an arrow on my back. I want to be the second guy in the forest to make sure that the market's not going to fall off if I sign a contract in September or if I sign a contract in October. I want to make sure that there are people that are signing a couple contracts here and there in the month of July and August to see where we are in August, in, in September or October to make sure that we're not going to be bombing out and buying in uh, a, a, a even further recession. And the message to buyers is you cannot time the bottom of the market. Unfortunately, there's just this sense that these buyers want, oh, I want the cheapest and I want the best rate and I want to time it the best as possible. But you have to understand that 
the bottom of the market when 2009, 2008's Lehman crisis hit, the bottom of the market was probably the first or second quarter of 2009. And when they were buying in 2009, no buyer thought that that was the bottom. Nobody knew when people were signing contracts at the edge, Northside Piers 1, Northside Piers 2, the uh, 20 Pine, 56 Pine, these were new developments. Oh, the Sitai, you know, these were new developments at that time. And those buyers that bought in that era have essentially increased their money by, I mean, if you bought at the edge, you probably doubled your money uh, if you bought in Williamsburg. And, and if you bought in 25, you probably made 35, 40%. It's, it's, but no one knew then that, oh, we're buying at the bottom. This is it. You know, I'm going to tri triple my money in 10 years. It, it's impossible to time the market. And you'll really only know, you know, three, four, five, six years after your purchase if you actually time the market or not. That's the reality of the situation. That's the moral of the story. In any event, like I said before, the major indicator is that uh, monthly contract activity is down 38.7% year over year with only 498 signed contracts in Manhattan in the month of July. Slow. And to that point, finally, I want to note out, note out that as my friends Steve and Hans Weidler in Washington, D.C., great brokers, great guys, great brothers, uh, Wall Street Journal team, big team there, uh, as they would say, and it's one of my favorite quotes, a great deal and a great house are almost always mutually exclusive. A great deal and a great house are almost always mutually exclusive. Meaning, one of the key attributes of a buyer's agent, like what we do is we negotiate it, right? But obviously buyers want to get the best deal they can. Truth of the matter is that the better the home is, the less negotiating leverage buyers have, even in a market like we're in today. Too many of our buyers that we represent pass on a great home because they are not able to get that discount that they're hoping to get. I'm just thinking of a, a bunch of people that I work with in my head right now. You know, they they want that discount so bad, even in the bad market. Okay, fine, they get that discount, but they end up purchasing an inferior property later. So just keep that in mind. Again, a great deal and a great house are almost always mutually exclusive. So now on that point, let's get down to our main segment. So today's segment is politics. Just kidding. No, no politics on this show. Uh, today we're talking about Biden, who is the Democratic frontrunner, and he has proposed five changes that he would make in real estate or related to real estate. Personally, not really a game changer for us. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a Democrat, so would it be friendly to New York City real estate owners or brokers or developers? I mean, it's a possibility. But just to go through the five things real quickly, one, SALT, which is the top tax deductions, interest rate deductions. Two, 1031 exchange. Three, fair housing. Four, international business in the United States. And five, opportunity zone. So let's talk about SALT first. SALT is probably my favorite topic, as you may know. The tax salt is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which implemented a $10,000 cap on real estate taxes, deductions off your federal income tax. That aspect of the law disproportionately hit high tax states like New York, New Jersey, California, Democratic states. For some reason, these tax bills obviously always exceed $10,000 per property, per home. If you live in Westchester, New York, five-bedroom you know, maybe a half an acre of land, your property taxes are probably twice that. You're probably going twenty to 25000 per annum. So because of that, it 
when that salt wall hit, when Trump signed in that bill, uh, the salt wall was implemented and it almost, I would say, crashed the markets of Westchester, New Jersey. I mean, the housing prices definitely took a hit. Uh, brokers were selling low interest rates, but whatever happened, the salt tax definitely put a dent in the market for Long Island, and Westchester, New York, and New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, so the reintroduction or the remodification of that law certainly could help a, a, a comeback in uh, property values and obviously uh, bring more uh, appetite back into the buyers of, of those areas. So back in December, December uh, House Democrats passed a bill that actually would have increased the salt deduction cap to $20,000 in 2019. Uh, and then it, and then uh, done away with it entirely 2020 and 2021. Uh, however, unfortunately, that bill did not set well with the Republican-controlled Senate, as you may understand, and the GOP sees salt deductibility as a subsidy to high-tax blue states. So Democrats have since bought back in the, uh, to include that language in the next COVID-19 relief package uh, that would eliminate the cap. So Biden could certainly bring that back and, uh, and help out some of these blue states. Uh, it, obviously, it's something that brokers that work in states like New York would probably support. So if Congress were to pass a measure to raise or eliminate that cap, Biden would likely sign it. Great. Great for us. Great for New Yorkers, right? Uh, Trump has promised to veto earlier attempts, although uh, I think he was initially surprised uh, and, and he actually pledged to look into the deduction when um, Chuck Schumer and company complained to him directly about it. So. Uh, we'll see what happens. You know, time will tell. But I think, you know, if Biden does become president, and I'm not advocating for the Republican or Democratic Party right now. I'm just saying if he does become president, then this is something, this is a bill that, that Biden can certainly align with. Second one is 1031 exchange. Just three years ago, it was crazy. There was a rumor about 1031 exchanges dying uh, under the Trump administration's watch, which is crazy. As a developer, he made his money in real estate. He was a his family was in real estate. He was a developer. I'm sure he's used 1031 exchange uh, exchanges dozens of times in his career. Some of you who may not know what a 1031 exchange is, is if you have an investment property that you're filing taxes on and you have income on, you could sell it if you have a, a let's just say a hundred thousand dollar capital gain on it or a $200,000 capital gain on it or a million dollar capital gain on it, whatever it may be, as long as you take the entire capital gain amount, the proceeds of the sale, and you put it into a quote-unquote like-kind asset or another real estate asset, residential or commercial, you could transfer that money in the capital gain tax-free to another real estate asset. So you're basically not liquidating the income, you're, you're, you're not liquidating your real estate asset, you're just Buying bigger, uh, buying a bigger or better piece of land or property. So the ten thirty, so the ten thirty one tax code provision, which allows investors to defer taxes, basically, like I said, by rolling their capital gains into recent property sales, uh, that was on the chopping block as part of the two thousand seventeen tax bill overhaul. Crazy, Trump was crazy to 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 even think of doing that. But anyways, they said that a policy was changed to apply exclusively to real estate. Uh, excluding other assets such as artwork. So it just basically said you can't uh, sell art and do a 1031 in art, which is, I guess, it, it, it does apply to a lot of these wealthier people, but for real estate people, uh, which is obviously the middle income people and the higher income people that own real estate and operate real estate and want to invest in real estate, the 1031 exchange is a huge game changer if that came off, uh, if that became a, if that bill got signed into law. 
So as part of a broader plan to roll back the Trump era tax cuts, Biden actually proposed making the 1031 exchange available to only those, listen to this, only those making less than $400,000 a year. Now, is that a gross number? Is that off capital gains? What if you have an, uh, filed an extension? I mean, there's all these different things. Is it just $400,000 a year in salary? Is it just $400,000 in, in, in capital gains? You know, there's all these, a lot of different questions, but the change would basically help raise revenue for Biden's $775 billion plan to fund childcare and care for the elderly over the next 10 years. So uh, I could see a lot of these industry people being skeptical that Biden would actually follow through with restricting 1031s. I'm sure he owns a lot of property himself, but they assert that doing so would hurt an already struggling economy. So I, who knows where this is going to go? Uh... One of our leading attorneys in our industry, Stuart Saft, uh, he, uh, he had a quote in here, which I liked. He said, it would just pull the rug from underneath a very huge part of the economy. Uh, I get it. You know, I get it. The, the, the sass, his assessment is that the impact would be a stretch, uh, but his sentiments reflect uh, how here, near and dear technical exchanges to our general industry. So that's 1031. And then the rest, I think, are, are not the biggest impacts. I would let's just skip over to opportunity zones. Opportunity zones, as you may know, uh, is there's uh, 8,700 designated areas in the United States uh, that are designated as a quote unquote opportunity zones, or they're basically neglected neighborhoods or neighborhoods that are underdeveloped and are ready to be zoned. A great example will be Long Island City. There was a block or a plot of land that are, that's a couple acres long in, in Long Island City where Amazon was thought to then come and redevelop that land. It was an opportunity zone. They were going to get tax breaks. The area was considered underdeveloped, and they were neglected neighborhoods, which uh, a big company like Amazon could have came in to initiate and encourage development in those distressed areas. Give 200,000 jobs. That sounds good right about now, doesn't it? Uh, but the program also is drawing criticism from uh, socialists like AOC, uh, come by and say that, you know, there's a report, I believe it was published by the Urban Institute, that concluded that uh, the uh, it only benefits deep pocket developers, or it only benefits guys like Jeff Bezos, uh, and it, it doesn't target the people, it's, it doesn't enrich the targeted community, the people that need the jobs. You know, I, again, I, I don't want to get too left or right on this, uh, on my podcast platform, but... Um, Right about now, hindsight, if Amazon was in Long Island City and had, let's just say, brought on those 25,000 extra jobs, I think it kind of sounds good about right about now. Uh, that said, uh, Biden indicated that he would reform the program, right? He would basically uh, require recipients of the tax break to make public disclosures of their investments and the impact on the local residents in terms of housing affordability, poverty, and job creation. Those three things. I completely agree with that. Transparency is key, especially in times like this. He also called on uh, opportunity funds, which is money raised to take advantage of the tax break, to incentivize partnerships with nonprofits and community groups. I completely agree. Uh, one of the early zoning laws established in New York City, if you walk down the street anywhere north of Washington Square Park, you'll notice, for example, Fifth Avenue, look north from Washington Square Park, north on Fifth Avenue, most buildings that have 15 floors or more, wedding cake, at around 13, 14, 15 floors. And if you walk up Midtown, it, same thing. Now, if they don't wedding cake and they go straight up, 
like for example, 445 Fifth Avenue, you'll notice that, or 325 Fifth Avenue, they go straight up more than 15 floors. The, the, the exchange, the give and take between the city and the developers are that if they don't wedding cake after 15 floors, then you gotta give public space. So walk around those buildings, 445 Fifth, uh, 845 United Nations Plaza, 325 Fifth Avenue, 100 United Nations Plaza, 250 East 40th Street, 235 East 40th Street. They all don't wedding cake. They go straight up into the sky, even the lipstick building. But they all give public space to those, to to the public. Uh, it's just a trade-off. This is how deals work. You gotta give and take. And I agree with this. Uh, the, you know, with Biden's uh, proposal to incentivize partnerships with nonprofits and community groups. You know, if you're gonna build, if you if the city's gonna give you a tax break and you're gonna build a facility for whatever business it may be. Yeah, incentivize partnerships with nonprofits and community groups and give something back to the city. So I, I think this is a, you know, a huge benefit, opportunity zones. Uh, the, the other two are kind of smaller. I mean, not smaller. Sorry, I don't want to say smaller. But it, you talk about Chinese business in the U.S., Trump wants to kick out TikTok, WeChat. I mean, that's pretty destructive. I think it's just not, not just the teenagers doing dance, dancing videos on TikTok. But you know, WeChat is a huge platform for uh, Chinese nationals or Chinese even you know citizens in the United States that just can't communicate in other ways. You know, WeChat's the main way of communication. So what Biden could do, it, it would be a little bit more Chinese-friendly to business businesses, Chinese businesses in the United States and operating uh, their objectives in the United States. Trump just seems to be too uh, maybe aggressive or too uh, extreme in one way or the other. Uh, and then finally, fair housing. You know, Trump, uh, he actually repeat, repealed something called the Affirmatively fur Furthering Fair Housing Rule. Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule. Uh, touting that, you know, doing so would save suburbs from having to welcome low-income housing. It's, it's, it's an idea of Trump uh, that he wants to keep. Uh, in 2015, the rule required local governments receiving federal housing financing to identify discriminatory housing practices in their communities and devise a plan to combat them. And I think this is an interesting thing that Biden's doing. You know, he wants to reinstate that rule. So, you know, he's, he's supported by various affordable housing advocates uh, in the government. And you know, this is a step towards adding some lower cost affordable housing to the suburbs. And, you know, the rule is one of many efforts that, you know, collectively have been re resisted and invaded by uh, much of suburbia. And I think, you know, this is something that maybe this Trump supporters, uh, you know, feel like they're entitled or they're empowered by Trump uh, because of this rule. You know, for us, it's, it's always a mix. I mean, you know, you look at 1,500 yards or you look at 100 Riverside Boulevard. I mean, you have affordable housing mixed in in the same building as uh, luxury housing. And this is kind of the reality of the situation is the suburbs have to play along uh, with what the city is doing too. You know, we want to be uh, progressive as possible. So that's all for today's show. Those were the five things that Biden would... Uh, potentially change and look into if he became president. Uh, we'll look back at the, at this after the election and look at look back on this episode to see uh, you know if these things do become uh, come into fruition. But that's all for today. Thank you for listening as always to the Real Talk podcast, and I will see you on the next episode when I have the the uh, economist of Street Easy coming on to discuss the rental market in New York City since the pandemic. Thank you all. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. 
turn right and rut hook niggas heavy on the curve See most of my niggas die early 20s to late teens I'm just trying to come from under the thumb of this regime 1% of a billion more than niggas ever seen Still they wanna act like it's an everyday